Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. These days, I find sport what I would call appointment viewing, the default setting. But that has been very much the case for me in this first test at Edgebaston. I was desperately hoping England would win this first test, but full credit to Australia, they end up winning by two wickets. England in their first innings, 393 for eight declared. Australia in reply all out for 386. England in their second innings, 273. Australia getting the job done, 282 for eight. They win by two wickets. We're going to head to the UK now because over there is our regular New Zealand cricket correspondent, Garth Galloway. Garth, good morning. Welcome. G'day, Mark, from a a beautiful sunny morning in Edinburgh. Glorious over here. They're having a lovely summer, even if they can't win a match. No, my mum's just come back from Ireland and she was saying me that she had amazing weather over there. Why are you in Edinburgh? Have you got any particular reason other than just visiting Edinburgh for the obvious? I flew over uh, to, to, to go to the Ashes Test, Mark, so I'm heading along for five days at Lord's next, starting next Thursday. And um, uh, one of my interests in, in life is collecting art. I bought a lot of work from a, at an art gallery up here in Edinburgh called the Ingleby Gallery. And uh, it was like a pilgrimage to me, really. I, I travelled up on the train yesterday, lovely trip, and, and met Richard Ingleby and his wife Florence, had a lovely meal last night. And we're off to meet a couple of wonderful Scottish artists uh, today. Are these landscape type paintings or is it? Certainly not. Absolutely not. <laughs> no chocolate box in my house, Mark. Um, no, they, they are, I would describe them very much as modernist. One, is a, is a, one of them is a cameraless photographer, a chap called uh, Gary Fabian Miller. And another one is a chap called John Huguenin. And if people have got any interest, look him up. He, he uses 89 colours in every painting and each painting he takes uh, makes a year to make. <laughs> and are they established? So they're the real deal. Are they established and reputable artists within Scotland? Like, are they household names over there? Are they um, artists that uh, the Scots appreciate? Uh, well, the, yeah, the studio we we'll go to today is a, is a chap called Callum Innes, who's established worldwide and, and shows with the Jensen Gallery in New Zealand. He's a, he's a fantastic artist. James Huguenin is, is very well known. Um, He's about 72 uh, and living uh, just south of Scotland. So we're going over the border towards Newcastle. Uh, and Yeah, he, he's well known. And Gary Fabian Miller just had a massive retrospective show in Bristol. And his photography is, I mean, it really is quite, it, it's extraordinary. It's beautiful. All very abstract, uh, or a lot of it's very abstract. But, um, you know, taken 40 years to make these cameraless photos. He's perfected the technique. And they're, they're really wonderful things to live with, Mark. Come and see them sometimes. How did you discover Scottish art? Well, it, it's um, I'm kind of obsessed with it, so probably more so than sport even. Um, and, uh, you know, I read and look, and these are artists. It, it, so it was more, um, it, less about, you know, Scottish artists, more about the the art itself. They're, they're artists I love, and they just happen to be, uh, you know, with, a, with this lovely gallery here in Ingleby. So Fabian Miller, is a, he's a British artist, uh, and um, Huguenin is British, is, is English as well, UK, whereas um, Callum Innes is Scottish. So, yeah, 
it, 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 they tend to go with the the really great artists tend to be with the really great galleries. There's no coincidence there. So they have artists from all over the world. Do we have any New Zealand artists that sort of um, are of a similar sort of genre to the artists that you're referring to? Not in cameraless photographs. Yes, so there's an artist from Wellington called Andrew Beck who, who makes beautiful works and shows with a number of galleries in New Zealand. Um, Callum Innes, I think, you know, for for the sort of style of painting that he does, is is in a you know very much one of the great artists in the world um, at the moment. Um, James Huguenin, there's no one else like him. I mean, he makes work. So as I said to you, Mark, 89 colours. He writes out a recipe which looks like a computer code. Uh, and before he puts a mark on paper or on, onto the wood, um, he, he will do that code. And then he uses just tiny, tiny, tiny dots. So it's almost like the pointillism that Surah and other European artists made famous all those years ago. Um, but I mean, it, it, it's a tortuous way of making a painting. As I say, 89 colours, and it takes a year for him to finalise it. Um, but New Zealand, of course, has some wonderful artists. I've just sort of made the danger of dipping my toe into looking further afield, which is um, expensive and daunting. Oh, fascinating, fascinating. Great way to kick off this interview. Great insight. <laughs> Let's, what has been the reaction from the British press and media to England's loss to Australia by two wickets? I mean, let's be honest, this could have gone either way, and it was five days of just the most enthralling test cricket. Um, so I've, I've just been having a good look at the Times, and uh, you know, and the Times covers cricket like no other paper. Really, there are three big articles in it. Uh, one that uh, that sort of covered the um, you know the, the final day, and uh, there's another one with the key key points of the match, and another uh, just looking at what will happen for the next test. Um, and so it's fascinating reading it. They're, they're, they're very forgiving. Um, is how I would describe them at the moment. And that's going to be an interesting thing because, of course, when you get to Lords, if they go 2-0 down, it will be very interesting to see you know, what, how the media does react. But at the moment, uh, they are enjoying their style of cricket. They're, they're, they seem to be pleased with England's effort. Uh, I mean, I, I thought for, for England even to get into that position, they actually did pretty well. Um, they, you know, Anderson only took one wicket in the match. Uh, Broad was head and shoulders uh, the best bowler for England. They struggled a little bit, apart from you know that wonderful century from Root in the first innings. They and uh, Bairstow seventy eight. They just seem to struggle in places. They will always need more runs out of their top three. Uh, you know they had the the issue issue with Moen Ali and uh, bowling thirty three overs, having come out of a diet of twenty twenty cricket and his finger going early in the match. Uh, Root substituted well. But I think you know they looked they looked a little bit broken towards the end. Stokes uh, was barely a fourth seamer in terms of the number of overs he bowled. He's very special and he does take those key wickets at times, as we saw in both innings. Uh, but I just felt that England were were, were just struggling um, a little bit to, to to keep ahead in the match. And, and but but once they had Australia right down in that second innings, I really did think that they would cheat at home. And Stokes dropped that difficult chance off at Lyon early on, and that was the, that was the match. Australia fought mm. hard and well, and uh, you know, terrific effort by them at the end. So, can you see England making changes for the second test? Well, I think Ali will uh, struggle. Uh, I, I, I can't see how his finger can be right. They've got uh, till Thursday next week. The second test starts at Lords. Um, it, it, it was an interesting insight when the second new ball was taken after they'd 
brilliantly decided to leave Root on for an extra over and he picked up a wicket. It was, it was a great piece of captaincy by Stokes and exactly the right decision, I think. But then when they did take the new ball, they went to Broad, understandably, and Robinson and not Anderson. Anderson bowled, you know, Anderson bowled well, but just not up to his normal standard. So I wonder, I think they've got to get some pace uh, against these Australians. There was a little bit of surprise for some that Wood didn't play in this match. I can understand the thinking behind that, but I think Mark Wood will come in and he will look to hurry up the Australians. Hopefully they'll get a little bit more bounce uh, than uh, you know this fairly placid pitch. I think you know England's desire will be to play a spinner. Um, they're running out of options there. The cupboard is very bare indeed. And listeners will recall that Jack Leach was injured and ruled out for this series. And they really are, are missing Leach. The choice uh, that people are talking about is, is the Hampshire uh, left-arm finger spinner Liam Dawson. He's only played three tests. He's taken seven wickets, uh, but those tests were in 2016 and 2017 against India and South Africa. And uh, that seems like a long time ago, but there, I, I think there's a reasonable chance that he could play. So I would I, I would think Anderson possibly out and Wood and, and, uh, and Dawson a straight replacement for Ali. I think they'll keep the batting as it is. Mm. A lot of discussion around that first day declaration by England. Some people felt that they probably were 50 runs short. I mean, hindsight's a wonderful thing. I've never been a coward wise after the fact. Um, were there lessons learnt there, or would, should they have perhaps just said to the two guys, and hey, look, you're just going to slog, and if you go out, we'll, you know, declare? But um, what, did yeah. you, what did you make um, of it all? Well, I suppose you have to go back and, uh, you know, the fairest way to judge that in a way, I think, is how did you feel about it at the time, as opposed to the, you know, the hindsight wisdom that you're yeah. talking about. Um, you know, I was a little bit surprised about it at the time. Um, having said that, uh, nothing that England does really surprises me. So I could see the thinking behind it. Um, I, I, can't, I feel in a way they were possibly a little bit carried away with the uh, the broad Warner thing, you know, this desire to get Warner facing broad. But in the end, it worked on day two. Um, uh, uh, you know, I, I don't think you're going to change the way England play. So uh, people can criticise that as much as they like. But I think they will go, you know, sometimes with their hearts and not their head, <laughs> if that makes sense to you. They, they, they will sense an opportunity and they will take a risk to try and win a game. And I think that's an example of that. And I don't think for a moment they'll be beating themselves up about it. It's a remarkable thing. Brendan McCullum, and I know you've got a long relationship with him. Um, just thinking about this whole thing. Here's Brendan McCullum, you know, came into the New Zealand cricket team. And I'll be, you know, you're aware that I was pretty hard on that era of cricket and the situation yeah. in South Africa and things just turned around and New Zealand became a better cricket team. He became a better player. He endeared himself to the New Zealand public. But he's a young man who was born and grew up in Dunedin and he's now got a style of cricket named after him. You've got sellouts at Ed's Best and there's never been more interest in test cricket. And this kid from Dunedin is responsible for most of it. It's just the most fascinating story and um, you know, you look at how much engagement there is in England, how much engagement there is around the world on this series because of a Brendan McCullum and a technically another New Zealander and Ben Stokes. I mean, try and put it in context. I mean, you know Brendan well. Two South Island boys with, with Stokes who grew up in Christchurch as well, born there. And um, yeah, well, I think uh, it, it's... 
that's why I say I, I, I don't think England are going to change the way that they play. They they are absolutely hell bent on entertaining people. Now, if if they lose the second one at Lords again, I I don't think they're going to change. I, I think they'll play the same way throughout the match, uh, and that is a a license that uh, McCullum has given to England. And I think in a way, it's now the only way that they 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 know how to play. He, he always talked about you know when. Um, during the trials and tribulations of his series, his, his time. And I remember talking to him for about 45 minutes after he'd scored 100 against the West Indies in Dunedin in, I think, 2013-14. And, you know, he was broken, really. And he said, you know, this is, you know, I should be, you know, I've just scored 100 for my country and I feel, you know, that I just don't want to keep playing the game. And, you know, we talked for about 45 minutes about that and talked about finding the love of the game and how you get that back. And, of course, they then went to South Africa, which you've referenced, and bowled out the 45. And he he talks in his book, which I think is, you know, it's a wonderful book written by Greg McGee. And, and he talked about being that, how could he get that love of the game back? And I think if you picture this image, it, it's helpful. He he wanted to be the boy from South Dunedin you know, who grew up in a pretty working-class family uh, who would wake up on a Saturday morning knowing that cricket was on and the first thing he would do would, would, would be to pull the curtains and hope for sunshine. And that's, you know, he wanted to be, uh, once once things started at, you know, going awry in terms of his test career, how people perceived him, the sort of hatred around the Taylor thing, all the nonsense that carried on then and the idiotic, you know, comments that un- unthinking and, un- and uneducated comments that were made about his supposed involvement in that—it was a lot of crap. But, um, but you know, he-, he wanted to be that boy who woke up and was dreaming of playing cricket, and that's all that matters. He wanted sunshine, and I-, I do think that that is the sort of imagery that I think about when I think of Brendan and how he lives his life. Um, you know, he he won't be. I'm sure he'll be frustrated as a coach that England weren't able to to, to put the, the the coffin into the nail into that coffin. Uh, but I also think that um, he will he'll stay true to the way that England are playing the game. Yeah, well, he's one of the. You know, we've exported a lot of great things around the world, and I guess Brendan McCullum's one of the best in more recent times. If you ask a lot of England. Uh, supporters, sports followers, because you can sit there and criticise the declaration and how we ended up losing the test, but boy, English cricket was in a pretty woeful state before he did take over. So it's not like it's not like he's come in and um, changed the winning formula, is it? Well, they'd, they'd won one from seventeen before he took over, and um, you know, I, 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 there was a <laughs> one of the players was talking on the TV yesterday. I can't about. In fact, it was. I think Stokes was telling a story, and I was slightly distracted on the train. But he was saying that um, Root went out to bat, and at the, you know, to the start of another session, and said, you know, looked at whoever he was going out to bat with, and he said, I think I'm going to ramp the first one. I just feel like ramping it. <laughs> and, and you know, the, the, they often talk about when they talk about Root, who used to be just fastidious in terms of his preparation and almost and tortured, really. You know, just hell-bent on getting his head in the right position, spending two hours batting and just, you know, cursing at himself when things went wrong. And, uh, you know, there was a, an article in the paper over here talking about Root's build-up to the first, you know, on the morning of the match and the day before, and he just went in, smashed 30 balls, walked out, smiling and grinning and happy as. 
scored 110 not out and 46. So, you know, there's an, there is an absolute transformation. I, you know, I, I don't, I do think that um, they will frustrate at times, and there, there will be if they continue, you know, to lose tests, uh, then there will be the sort of um, minute picking over of the detail and the and, and the things like the declaration, and so on. But uh, but hopefully, you know, I'm really hoping um, for Brendan's sake and for for the test series that England will turn it around mm. at Laws. They've got their work cut out for them, though. Australia one 0 ahead, it won't be easy because mm. he hasn't yet felt the full brunt of the tabloids in the British press when they decide no. to go after somebody or they decide enough is enough and they decide no. that they need to get nasty. No, and, and, and I mean it's interesting because you know the other thing is that. Um, I thought Bairstow looked very ordinary uh, wicket-keeping this test. Uh, interestingly, uh, Peter Carey, the Australian keeper, put on a masterclass to Lyon. I thought Carey really has come on as a, as a test as a quality test match keeper and, and batsman, and mm. listeners should watch for him. I think he's a really fine player, and he's got a good temperament. And, and, in contrast, Bairstow uh, missed a stumping, uh, dropped a couple of catches, and technically he just looked... Uh, he, he looked second class compared to Kerry. Obviously, uh, he's going to have to do a lot of work. Um, you know, if, if England are going to play a spinner and there's going to be a bit of turn, he's got to do a lot of work. But, but again, um, while those incidents are mentioned as part of the overall review, no one is, is calling for heads or, or baying for blood. They admire this team immensely. Uh, as I say, if they go 2 nil down or... Um, you know, we'll see how the press behave then. But at the moment, all is calm. You're going to behave yourself at Lords, aren't you, Garth? I don't want a television. Have you got? You're not a member yet. You don't have one of the ties, do you? No, no, not for me. No, absolutely not. Never, never aspired to be one of those. <laughs> you know, you, you know it. You, know, you be, know a few people. Be, it's probably why I've never aspired to be one. But <laughs> hey, I, I just, just quickly. No, yeah, go on. Sorry. No, clubs aren't for me. <laughs> no. Hey, I just wanted to touch quickly on Nathan Lyon because, you know, it's always been Shane Warne, hasn't it? Arguably one of the greats, well, arguably the greatest that's ever played the game. But, you know, you look at Nathan Lyon, 121 matches. He's on 495 wickets, average of yep. 30.99. In an era where, you know, the wickets are a lot more benign these days, he's just sort of snuck underneath the radar. And he might not really ever get his place in history because he's always going to be in the shadow of Shane Warne. Yes, he, he will always, though, uh, be Australia's greatest finger spinner. Or, or at the time that he retires, he will be. Who knows what will happen in the future? Um, you know, Australia have not produced a, a finger spinner who is even close to his standard. You know, the, it, it, he really is quite extraordinary. And thinking about the off spinners off the top of my head who have been top, I mean, obviously, Murray Litherin, who's... Um, whose action allowed him, and I've never been critical of, of, of his action. I've always thought it was past and he was legitimate. But he was able to do um, extraordinary things. There was a West Indian spinner who was Lance Gibbs, an off-spinner who took 300 wickets at the time when 300 was the was sort of the milestone, that you know, the, the, the target. Um, and Lyon rightly sits really underneath Moralithan, in my view, and then above players like Gibbs and um, other other finger spinners. Uh, you know, Glenn Turner wrote a book years ago called My Way, um, which was, I think, his first cricket book, um, you know, about 12, 15 years into being a professional player. And he, he analysed the game and he talked about technically how in those days 
how a right arm off spinner should in theory never really be able to get a right-handed batsman out. Now, obviously, the game's changed an awful lot since then in terms of be the first person to say it. But his theory was, was a good one. Um, and it, 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 it kind of makes sense when you look at it because it was very well considered as it would be from Glenn. Uh, and then, and it, it always fascinated me how then you look at players like Lyon, who have just, and Maura Lutheran, who have had to change what they do uh, in order to break down that basic advantage that a right-handed batsman has playing against an off-spinner. And they've just done it extraordinarily well. I mean, Lyon, he's able to vary his turn. He doesn't have that sort of the deucer and those sorts of deliveries. Uh, but he does vary his turn, and I think one of the big things about him is he's able to extract considerable bounce, and that's been to his advantage. But you know, he, he can only have got to the position that he's got to by working incredibly hard. You know, he really has been. Actually, the other spinner, finger spinner, I remember who I used to love watching was a left armer guy, Derek Underwood, in the 70s, 60s, yep. and 70s for England. Medium pace almost. Jeremy Coney type pace. <laughs> Possibly faster. The, the, the prey mantis used to love Jeremy. Uh, look, Garth, hey, just someone's texting. Just one more time, the name of the Scottish artist who uses the eighty-nine colours. Oh, James Huguenin, H-U-G-O-N-I-N, English artist, um, based at the uh, Ingleby Gallery in Scotland. They're very. They don't photograph well because the colours are so small. But um, go and have a look at the Ingleby Gallery website, and if you look for James Huguenin, and also have a look at Gary Fabian Miller, those beautiful, huge um, photographs made without a camera. Extraordinary. And the, the other thing about Fabian Miller, and I'm t- taking a luxury talking to you about this, is that he's, he's about 65. He's done that for 40 years, and the chemicals now are so poisonous. Uh, that um, you can't use, can't find him anymore. So he's unable to make works in the same way that he has for the last 40 years. And regrettably, he, he's also developed a cancer, which is likely to be from all of those dreadful chemicals. Yeah, it's um, it's I've just had a I've just had a quick Google of um, Huguenin, and there's, there's there's sort of a modern day version of a Jackson Pollock feel about it. Well, he's he, he's he would, you know, Surar I think is probably the influence. So that pointillism, you know, those little, yeah. little dots of tiny, tiny dots. The other thing about him though, um, whereas Surar was making an image that was discernible, Huguenin, if he sees something starting to develop, so bear in mind, I told you that he, he's got a he, he writes down basically a book in the form of his formula and yeah. how he's going to put each colour and each dot, and if he sees as he's as he's starting to make the painting, an image appear like a cat's head or a dog's face or something, he will start again. He doesn't want any of that. So people come to our house and look at the Huguenin that I bought and say, I can see it. I can see flowers. And then I get them to look away and say, right, where are they? And they've gone. Yeah, yeah it's interesting. There. I'm just trying to describe <laughs> this to people. It's a bit like when you sort of sit down at the eye specialist and they show you those coloured cards and you've got to see if you can see the six or the yeah, seven right. in the that's middle of them. <laughs> and there's, there's, a little bit of a, there's a little bit of a feel like that, but as you say, the dots and the colours are so much smaller. Look, I'm just having a look now, and I've got to say the first thing I thought was some of the bigger art, you know, automatically reminded me of Jackson Pollock. But mind you, my, my history of art and knowledge of art so limited, that's probably the only reference point I've got, to be fair. <laughs> I'll say nothing. <laughs> it's about as good as my singing, mate. Yeah. 
<laughs> well, what fun to talk to you about art from Edinburgh. No, I know. Look, I'm fascinated by it. 24 minutes after eight. Garth, look, enjoy your day in Edinburgh. Um, lovely to have you on the programme, my good man. I'm very envious that you're going to be sitting there in Lords next week watching that second test. Well, we might be able to talk to you about it. We'll see how we go, but hope, hopefully England will be up for the fight. Fantastic. Garth Galloway there talking cricket.